So I was at a convention this past week, the North American Christian Convention. Lee and I like to go, and it's a week of encouragement. We sang praise to God, and, and we listened to sermons, and we learned about so many things. And in fact, we saw some friends of ours there that uh, you might be familiar with, Charlie and Carol Elgin, spent some fun time with them. And it was just a, a great time of encouragement, but their long days They start early and they go late. And so one of the things that is a really valuable commodity at the North American Christian Convention is coffee. I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, church leaders in general uh, drink a lot of coffee. Okay, so it's already uh, a precious commodity, but if you add long days, lots of walking, short nights, and babies who aren't sleeping because they're not in their beds, you get the need for coffee. And so you walk into the coffee shop, and what might normally be a two- or three-person line turns into a line that's going out the door, right? And so I was waiting in line, and there was this couple behind me, and they had their two girls, and we had our two children, and uh, I was waiting for my coffee I'd ordered, and... um, and there was different baristas making different baristas or people who work at coffee shops. I didn't know that until recently either. But anyway, there were different people making different drinks, and somebody was making mine, and another person was working on somebody else's drink. And have you ever seen those types of coffee? I think they're called lattes, and on the top of them, there's artwork. Have you ever seen that, where there's like a leaf or a heart in the top of the coffee, something to do with the cream or something like that. Well, this particular barista was really, really good. He made a heart. And it turns out that the guy behind me in line who had ordered this for somebody in his family was an amateur latte artist. I learned that's what they call them. They're latte artists, okay? And uh, so apparently at home, he likes to, to experiment to see if he can do that. And just as innocently and as sweetly as possible, his young daughter said as, as she watched the barista do this, she said, whoa, dad, he is way better at that than you are. <laughs> and I did what you did. I laughed and we all laughed and we had a good time. And, and then I got to thinking later on in the day, it dawned on me, you know, that's funny, but that's the way so many of us think of ourselves. We spend our whole lives looking around and saying, whoa, they're way better at that than me. And we go to work and there's somebody else there and we look at them all day and we say, whoa, they're way better at that than me. And then we come to church and it looks like there's somebody who knows more about the Bible than us or or somebody who we feel like is a better parent than us and we end up saying, whoa, they're way better at that than me. And then we go to our children's sporting events and unless your last name is Smith, there's probably somebody out there who's a better athlete than you and we spend the whole game going, whoa, they're way better at this than me. And then we get their report card. And I don't know if it's math or science or English or recess, but you're not good at something, okay? And you look at your report card, their report card, and you go, man, those other parents are way better at this than me. And then we do the most dangerous thing of all. We get onto Facebook, and we see these genetically engineered posts optimized to portray happiness, and we say, good grief, the whole world's better at this than me. Whoa, they're way better at this than me. 
It's easy to start believing it. It's easy to start thinking that we'll never be good at anything. But can I just tell you something this morning? Can I just encourage you with something? God didn't create you to be anyone else. God didn't create you to be anyone else. If God wanted you to be just like somebody else, he'd have made you a twin. And then guess what? Even twins have different personalities. Kind of an expert on that subject. The Bible made you, you. Let me say that one more time because I think this is important and I don't think you got it. The Bible says that God made you, you. You weren't an accident, okay? God didn't mess up. He didn't slip as he was adding different ingredients into the beaker that would become you. You are you for a reason. Psalm 139 says it this way. You, God, made all that is delicate, all the inner parts of my body, and he knit me together when I was in my mother's womb. God made you on purpose. So if you've got a quirky sense of humor, right? if your nose is a little bit too big or your ears are a little bit too small, if you've got weird interests and hobbies or you're good at math, you're not good at science, if you're good at talking, if you're not good at talking, if you really like being around people or you really don't like being around people, God made you exactly the way you are. You aren't an accident. That's the person he wanted to make when he made you. And that's the truth, and it should be empowering. Because it means that God created you for a purpose. That purpose is to serve him. He's uniquely gifted you to serve him in a way that nobody else can. In a way that nobody else can. He's gifted us to serve him. You know, when we start to think about serving God, Especially on the heels of our last sermon series, we looked at the, the old people, or the, the Old Testament heroes of the faith, and these just giants that we look up to, people like Abraham and Moses and, and, uh, and Daniel and Nehemiah. And it's easy to think about those people and say, whoa, they're way better at this faith thing than me. They're way better than me. Today, I want to challenge this conventional wisdom by asking you a question. Right? Because conventional wisdom says, whoa, whoa, they're way better at this than me. Whatever it is, whoever you are, somebody else is way better at this than me. Today, I want to challenge that conventional wisdom by asking you a question. If God can do that, what can't he do? Let me explain what I mean. Okay, If God can do that, what can't he do? I know I don't have notes for you again this week, but if you are taking notes, maybe on the bracket of your prayer page, maybe you want to write this question down. If God can do that, what can't he do? Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Can I ask you a question? If God can do that, 
what can't he do? And God saw that the light was good, and then he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness night. And evening passed, and morning came, marking the first day. Then God said, let there be a space between the waters to separate the waters of the heavens from the waters of the earth. And that is what happened. God made this space to separate the waters of the earth from the waters of the heavens. God called this space sky, and evening and morning came, marking the second day. Can I ask you a question? If God can do that, what can he do? Then God said, let the waters beneath the sky flow together into one place so dry ground may appear. And that's what happened. God called the dry ground land and the water sea. And God saw that it was good. And then he said, let the land sprout with vegetation, uh, every sort of seed-bearing plant and trees that grow seed-bearing fruit. These seeds will then produce the kinds of plants and trees from which they came. That's what happened. Land produced vegetation, all sorts of seed-bearing plants, and the trees with seed-bearing fruit. Their seeds produced plants and, and trees of the same kind, and God saw that it was good, and evening and morning came, marking the third day. If God can do that, what can he do? Then God said, let lights appear in the sky to separate the day from the night. Let them be signs to mark the seasons, days, and years. Let these lights in the sky shine down on earth. And that's what happened. God made two great lights, the larger one to govern the day and the smaller one to govern the night. Oh, he also made the stars. God set these lights in the sky to light the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and evening passed. And morning came, marking the fourth day. If God can do that, what can't he do? Then God said, let the waters swarm with fish and other life, and let the skies be filled with birds of every kind. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that scurries and swarms in the water, and every sort of bird, each producing offspring of the same kind. And God saw that that was good. And then God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply. Let the fish fill the seas and the birds multiply on earth. And evening passed, and morning came, marking the fifth day. You know what I'm going to ask you? If God can do that... What can he do? Then God said, let the earth produce every sort of animal, each producing offspring of all the same kind, livestock, small animals that scurry along the ground, and wild animals. And that's what happened. God made all sorts of wild animals, livestock and small animals, each able to produce offspring of the same kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, this is where it gets fun, then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They'll reign over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and the livestock and all the wild animals on the earth and all the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it, reign over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Then God said, look, I've given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food, and I've given you every green plant as food for all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, and all the small animals that scurry along the ground, everything that has life, and that's what happened. And then, this is good, ready? Then God looked over all that he had made and saw that it was very good. Everything else had been good. This was very good. Can I ask you a question? If God can do that, what can he do? 
So I want to stop there and, and just tell you what we just read. This is a true story, by the way. There's a God, and he is creative. And that creative God who exists created things. He created uh, water, and I'm particularly glad that he did that because you know what lives in water? Largemouth bass. Yeah, I'm particularly glad that he created that. And he created land, and he created sky, and stars, and sun, and moon, and he created fish. We've already covered that. He created birds, and animals, and livestock, and, and some of you are particularly glad that God created deer and wild turkey, right? God created all of these things. God created great high mountains and mighty rolling seas and beautiful sunsets and California redwoods, great smoky mountains, all of these beautiful, beautiful things. And he liked it. He called it good. But then he created people, kind of like you. They dressed a little differently then. It's a different sermon. And he created people. And he said, it's very good. That's, that's very good. So this God who created everything that we see, who can speak creation into existence, created us and has declared us the highest order of His creation. He created us so that He could love us and have a deep and meaningful relationship with each of us. And each of us that He has created, He created exactly and specifically and especially the way that we are with unique and specific gifts, talents, abilities so that we can serve Him in a unique way. God created all of us. God can do that. What can he do? Let me tell you another story. Another true story, by the way. You can go ahead and turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 23 this time. Luke chapter 23, we're going to start in verse 26. Here's what we read. As they led Jesus away, a man named Simon, who was from Cyrene, happened to be coming in from the countryside. The soldiers seized him and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. I'm going to skip to verse 33. And when they came to the place called the skull or Golgotha, they nailed him to it. And the criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. Verse 39. One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed. He said, so you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it. Save yourself. And save us too while you're at it. But the other criminal protested, don't you fear God? Don't you fear God even when you've been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man, he hasn't done anything. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Let's go, let's go on. By this time, it was about noon. And darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. The light from the sun was gone, and suddenly the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn down the middle. Then Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. 
And with those words, he breathed his last. And when the Roman officer overseeing the execution saw what had happened, he worshiped God and said, surely this man was innocent. And when all the crowd that came to see the crucifixion saw what had happened, they went home in deep sorrow. But Jesus' friends, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching. Skip ahead to verse 55. As his body was taken away, the women from Galilee followed and saw the tomb where his body was placed. Then they went home, and they prepared spices and ointments to anoint his body. But by the time they were finished, the Sabbath had begun, so they rested as required by the law. Very early, on Sunday morning, the women went to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared They found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance, so they went in. But they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus, and as they stood there puzzled, two men suddenly appeared to them clothed in dazzling robes. And the women were terrified, and they bowed down with their faces to the ground. Then the men asked, why are you looking among the dead for someone who is alive? He isn't here. He's risen from the dead. Remember what he told you back in Galilee that the Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and that he would rise again on the third day? And they remembered that he'd said this. So they rushed back from the tomb to tell his 11 disciples and everyone else what had happened. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of Jesus, and several other women who told the apostles what had happened. But the story sounded like nonsense to the men, so they didn't believe it. However, Peter jumped up and ran to the tomb to look. And stooping, he peered in and saw the empty linen wrappings. Then he went home again, wondering what had happened. Can I ask you a question? If God can do that, what can't he do? What can't he do? The God who created the universe entered his creation. And he didn't enter his creation to to wield his authority. He didn't enter his creation for personal gain, to earn riches or power. The God who created the universe entered his creation to give his life for his creation. Why? (laughs) Why do we do that? Because we need it. Because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and no matter what we do, no matter what we do, we'll always be forced to say, I'm not good enough. But no matter what we do, we can look at Jesus and know that, wow, he's way better at this than me. He's way better at this than me. And when we acknowledge that we're not good enough, 
That like everyone around us, that like everyone who's sitting next to us, we have sinned in some way or another. And that we have continuing sin in our lives that we need to address. And, and we recognize that, that we can't fix it on our own. No matter how good we are, we'll never be good enough to re-enter God's glorious standing. And when we believe that if we ask for forgiveness, it will be given That Jesus will make us good enough. Not, not of anything that we've done, but because He's good enough. And that's why He came. That's why He entered His creation. Because the God who created the universe created us for an intimate fellowship and relationship with him that we can't have, but he still wants to have with us. And so he said, I'm going to make a way so that we can have that. And it's going to be painful for Jesus. So he's going to get what you deserve so that you can get what only he deserves. I know this is theological and Bible talk, and if you've grown up in church, you're comfortable and you're familiar with this language, but if this is your first Sunday in church, you're going, this guy's just talking in circles. I want to I show you what this looks like in a real person's life. So I grew up, let me start further back. <laughs> uh, I was born, uh, I'd have two incredible parents, and um, God created me exactly the way he wanted me to be. Um, not organized at all. I, uh, I would probably forget my name if I didn't hear it so often. Um, I make sure to write things on my calendar that are important, like Sunday, otherwise I'd probably forget. Okay, um, not organized at all. I do feel uh, a level of comfort with getting up in front of people and communicating things. Uh, I do feel a level of comfort in studying my Bible and, and walking with people through difficult circumstances. And I believe that God created me exactly the way I am for that reason, but we're getting ahead of ourselves still. So God created me exactly the way that I am uh, for the purpose of serving him. And I grew up in a home, and uh, my sisters are really gifted athletes. I'm a decent athlete. Some of you would argue that point, right? I get it, but this is my sermon. You just got to listen, okay? Deal with it, okay? Um, both my sisters, incredibly gifted athletes, and so what they would do is um, they would play on traveling softball teams. And we would go all over the country most weekends. And so uh, here's the lesson that I learned growing up is that church is important unless there's something that's more important, Church is important unless there's something that's more important. And so that's what I learned growing up. And, and so we would be all over the country, really neat places. Um, softball tournaments, awesome. We went on a, we called them weekend getaways, just about every weekend. But again, church was important unless there was something that was more important. And so that's what we did. And as I grew and, and became an athlete in my own right, I, I remembered the lesson that I'd learned. Church was important unless there was something that was more important. And I started deciding what I thought was more important. And as I was in high school and was an athlete, there's a certain level of social acceptance that comes with that. And I started to decide that going out with my friends on Saturday night and staying out late was 
more important than going to church. And I started to decide that my friendships that were leading me away from God was more important than going to church. And you can see where this is headed. Obviously, I didn't make it in the big time, right? There's no name. Nobody called Tony Mendezabel on draft day, okay? Um, but uh, I'd learned that church was more important unless there were things that were more important. And I started building my life on that foundation. Well, guess what? After I graduated from high school, went on to college, I decided that church really wasn't all that important at all. And I built some uh, relationships in my life that were really unhealthy. And I, of course, um, through high school, spent a, a lot of time drinking and uh, doing drugs. And uh, as I left high school, uh, I didn't have to hide that from anybody anymore. At least when I was in my parents' house, I had to at least come home eventually and, and act normal so that my parents wouldn't catch on. Well, guess what? When I leave there, I don't have to do that anymore. And so I see my life start to go down and down and down. I call it the downward spiral of sin. Once you start sinning, it's easy to keep sinning, isn't it? So I did that, and I find myself in a place where I'm confident in my ability to drink and then, and then get behind the wheel of an automobile. Did it more times than I can count. Got caught at it twice. So before I turned 21, I'd been arrested for drinking and driving twice. And I'm sitting there in jail the second time. And uh, by the way, when I was 18, I got a Bible verse tattooed on my arm. Um, because that's what you do when you're 18 and you think you're a Christian. You don't have to ask anybody's permission to do anything. Or you get a Bible verse tattooed on your arm. Job 28, 28. Let me tell you what it says, and you're going to think, man, that's ironic. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and to shun evil is understanding. So there I am in jail with that tattooed on my arm. And the guy that I'm sharing the cell with says, hey, what's that on your arm? What's that mean? This is a life-changing moment for me because I realized I didn't have a thing to tell him. My whole life, I thought I'd been a Christian. I thought that no matter what I did, I, I still hung on to and clung to, to prayer, and I still wanted to have a relationship with God, but I wasn't doing anything to have a relationship with God. In fact, I was walking fast and far away from Him, so far, in fact, that when somebody asked me about my relationship with God, I had nothing to tell them. I had nothing to say. I couldn't tell him about how much God loved him because I didn't know how much God loved me. I couldn't tell him that Jesus came and died so that I could be forgiven because I didn't know I needed forgiveness. I had nothing to say. And I got angry at myself. I mean, I got angry. And I said, when I get out of here, I'd talk like I was in this slam for like nine months. Now I just had to wait for my parents to bail me out. I spent like, like nine hours in jail, okay? So I'm not hardened, okay? Obviously, okay? So I said, when I get out, I'm going to begin to investigate Christianity on my own. 
And if this thing works, if it's real, if it's true, so be it. I'm going to devote myself to it. And if it doesn't, I'm done. I'm not going to pretend anymore. So I started going to church. My mom, very faithful, very godly, very Christian woman. Uh, she had been praying for me all throughout this time. You see, we think we hide our sins, and we think nobody knows, but everyone knows. Everybody can see the hurt in our hearts and the pain in our actions. And My mom had been praying for me for years, so I decided I'm going to start going back to church with her. That seems like a good place to start. And so for months and months and months, I'm going to church, and I'm listening to these sermons, and I wanted so badly wanted so badly for it all to make sense and for it to click and for me to go that's it this works christianity i wasn't getting that i've been going to church for like six months and uh i'd been faithfully attending and there's a youth minister at the time Uh, he said hey tony I, I know what, what you've got going on in your life, and, uh, but I see that you're here every week, and uh, I feel like you're, you're, really, you're really struggling and you're really searching. Um, the thing that made my faith come alive for me was serving, so I want to give you an opportunity to serve. I want you to be the second set of eyes in fourth and fifth grade boys' Sunday school, and uh, there's no reason that they should have trusted me with that. Right? I'm going through the legal system, working on my felony, work with the fourth and fifth grade boys' Sunday school. Um, but as I'm this second set of eyes in fourth and fifth grade boys' Sunday school, we're studying through the book of Daniel, and I am just captivated. I'm just, I'm just listening. I'm going, wow, that happened? That was awesome. Tell me another one. Are we out of time? What do you mean we're out of time? Sit down. Say more. And this material that's designed for fourth and fifth grade boys begins to work on my heart. And I'm craving it. And I can't wait for Sunday. And at the end of three months, this is a, they had a different format. Teachers taught in three-month increments because there were two services, so you could go to one and serve in the other. They did three months at a time, so that way you could develop a relationship with the students. But that's a different story, too. And so at the end of that three-month quarter, they said, Tony, You have a really good relationship with the kids. You seem to think and act like them. Still not sure how to take that. But uh, I said, why don't you be the teacher? And I said, okay. And as I studied, because, you know, I wanted to do a good job for these kids. I didn't want them to do the same dumb things that I'd done. As I studied lessons that were designed for fourth and fifth grade boys, God continued to work on my heart. I wasn't teaching them. I wasn't teaching them. I was teaching me. So after that three months, I'm going, I need, I need more of this. I end up at Bible college. I call it regular college. It, they teach you this. <laughs> There's no need to specify the difference between college and Bible college. You don't call it engineering college. You just call it college. Anyway, so I end up at college and uh, farmer college. I'm done. I'm moving on. Uh, I end up at college and I'm learning about this guy named Jesus and what he's done for me. My whole world changes and I'm spending all of my time around these people that really believe this and their lives and their actions and their thoughts and the things that they do are motivated by this guy named Jesus and the life that he lived. 
I couldn't get enough of it. I didn't know a thing when I got to Bible college. The only Christian literature I ever read was left behind. Okay, And here they are. They've studied all of these scholars and theologians, and I'm going, this is great. Tell me more about the Jesus guy. I don't have a clue what any of you are talking about. Those are big words. Tell me more about Jesus. And it changes my life. And I realize, oh, I've got to do this. I've got to do this. I, I know about this guy Jesus now. And God's kind of gifted you in a way where you don't, you don't feel scared when you get up in front of people and you talk about them. Maybe you should tell people about Jesus for a living. And, and so I, I start to think about it and I pray about this and I know this is what I'm supposed to do. And I start to think about that six-month time period where I went to church and I just wanted so badly to hear a sermon that met with my life. And I thought, that's my goal. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get up every week for the rest of my life and tell somebody something that introduces Jesus to them where they are. And I don't know if I'm any good at it. I don't know if I succeed on a weekly basis. But that's why I get out of bed every day to teach people about Jesus in a way that changes their lives. If God can take me a drunk idiot with potential who is throwing his life away. If God can do that, what can he do? I don't know what God needs to do in your life today. But I know, I know, I know he can. Let's pray. God, you're good. You are holy. And you are righteous and you are just. You have created everything and your desire is to redeem everything. So God, we ask, redeem us. And we pray this in the name of the Savior Jesus. Amen.